I'm going to be honest with you, it has been somewhat difficult for me these past, uh, actually not just a couple of weeks, a couple of months, it has not really rained much here in central Florida, and it's allowing the allergens to kind of hang in the air, and it's killing me, all right? It, it's very difficult. Now, I don't know about you, I have allergies. How many here have allergies? You have allergies, you're my brothers and sisters. There we go, yes. <laughs> Sharers in, in like tribulations. Um, so actually, about 10 years ago when I was diagnosed with allergies, um, it was after a surgery that I had because I had a six-month sinus infection that the doctor said, you know what, we should probably do something about this. So I had a, I had a surgery, and uh, recovery from that was horrendous. Regardless, they tested me for allergies. They put me on Allegra, and after a few years, Allegra didn't do anything. I have now switched over to Claritin. I'm not going to ask you what allergy medication you would be on, but the truth is that we, 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 have these, we can have these allergies, these aversions to certain things. Now, here's how it, it worked for me. After the surgery, the doctor said, uh, it's possible, Mike, that you have an allergy or some allergies that complicated this sinus infection, and so we want to test you for this. So I went in for a very special appointment, and the allergist or allergesiologist, whatever, the doctor, tested me for, uh, uh, for allergies, discovered that I am allergic to certain types of weeds like Johnson grass. I am also allergic to uh, dust mites or their remains. I am also allergic to um, to dander from cats and dogs and horses. And we had two cats, so eventually we had to kiss them goodbye. And eventually, after all of this testing, because I was asking her, so what's this for? What's this for? And then finally, she came down to this one. She said, because it registered positive. She said, you are not only allergic to molds and mildews and cats, dogs, dander, uh, horse dander, but also, are you ready for this? Roach feces. Yes. You know, I, I mean, I can understand if it was, you know, human baby feces. Okay, and, and dad, I can only imagine dad saying, you know, sweetheart, you know that I'm allergic to this stuff, so it's, you're going to need to change the poopy diapers, okay? And or soil diapers, excuse me. And so I can only imagine the, the, the mom, the wife, going to the doctor and says, he needs to get tested because he's telling me, all right, but, so I can understand that at least a little bit, but really? You're allergic to roach feces. I mean, how would they even begin to test for this? Uh, junior, you need to stop playing in that. You know, we actually should test you whether you're allergic to that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. It just, it, in my little brain, it just does not compute. How did they ever get around to test? You know, why don't you just test for moon dust? Are you allergic to moon dust? You know, maybe, maybe. Anyways. I can understand all of that, but really. Nevertheless, so they have found out, I am allergic to all of these things. Now, my point is that truly all of us are born with an allergy or an aversion, if you will, to obeying God. There is something in us that the Bible calls sin that preys on our flesh that causes us to not want 
to obey God. There is something instilled in us, and the Bible calls this, in, in, in so many words, an addiction to sin. I was born a sin addict. The Bible words it this way, that we were slaves to sin. Wow. I was, I was a slave to my sin, desperately wanting, because I grew up in a Christian home, desperately wanting to do what was right. But wow, I can't tell you. It, it, I mean, I, I had every inch of our bathroom memorized because that's where I got disciplined. I just spent a lot of time in the bathroom. You know? <laughs> okay, time for another discipline session here. I mean, that was my life. And you know about how well I knew the principal at my uh, school, in elementary school, because I visited him so often, first name basis and such. But th the truth is, I, I had this addiction, this slavery to sin. The Bible even says I was dead, spiritually dead in my sins. Now, when I was 14, I mean, even though I was born in a Christian home, I had to come to this realization at age 14 of this condition in my soul. And wanting to do good, but it was always elusive, always finding myself doing the wrong things, like a lot. And then finally, coming to this realization at age 14, I needed God's remedy for this problem, this aversion to obedience towards God. And it was found in Jesus Christ. And when I embraced Jesus and his sacrifice for me, the fact that he was willing to take the punishment that I deserved for my sin upon himself, he died in my place. That transformed me. And Bible even says that having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And, and what an awesome truth that is, that not only did I believe in Jesus, he began to transform me by placing his spirit in me. This is an awesome truth. And I, honestly, I think Zach did a fabulous job this past Wednesday talking about glorification, justification, and sanctification. Amen? Awesome job, Zach. Awesome job. Thank you. Uh, great illustrations and examples. Loved it. And so when I became a Christian, this aversion to obedience did not completely go away. And it frustrated me. Now, I was no longer you know, addicted to sin. I, I actually found, wow, I, I can actually have some victory here. But I began to realize that this Christian life was a process. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Many of us, as we are following Jesus truly wanting to obey him and, and raising children, uh, looking to have some impact on the place where we're working, a positive impact, I mean. Our neighbors wanting to be good neighbors and have uh, influence, godly influence in our neighborhood, in our families, etc., we come across this struggle, and I would venture to say many, most of us, maybe even all of us, struggle with this. And that is this. God, here I go again. I have stumbled into sin. At some point, I fear you're going like, to cast me off forever. At some point, I feel like you are going to rank me as a second-class citizen. And the pilot's going to come back and say, sorry, taking you back to coach. And 
at some point that God is going to say, you know what, Mike, this is it, all right? The purposes that I had for you, nope, gone. You've blown it. You've thrown away your chance. Have you ever felt this way? Wondering, wow, maybe this time I am truly beyond God's forgiveness. And, And maybe if he does forgive me beyond that redemption, full redemption, such that God would still say to me, I have this purpose for you, and I am not canceling it. I will bring it to pass. We wrestle with God. Will you really do that? Would you really keep your promises like that? Even though I've failed you so many times, will I ever come to this point in which my disobedience will cause you to say, I'm sorry. The plans I had for you, they were good, but not anymore. I want us to look at a Bible character found in the Old Testament, and it is the prophet Jonah. Um, This past week, God has ministered to me considerably through this, and I've been in this. I felt like this was what God wanted me to share with you guys. I was going to get into it sometime in the future, but I felt impressed. Let's do it now. In Jonah's life, as we go through this, I need you to take Disney's 1940 version of Pinocchio and the Whale, and I need you to throw it out because it truly has little to nothing to do with the story of Jonah. Now, if you may, how many of you have ever seen the movie Pinocchio, the Disney's version of Pinocchio? Actually, did you know that the original book portrays a wooden puppet who is not mischievous, but he is just downright evil? And at the end of the book, he gets hung and he dies. Well, Disney thought, we can't do that, so we're going to change Pinocchio. We're going to make him this adorable little mischievous guy, and in the end, he's going to find redemption. Do you know where Pinocchio finds his redemption? Yes, in the belly of a whale. And in the belly of the whale, guess who else is there? It is his dad, Geppetto, Geppetto's cat, and last but certainly not least, Geppetto's huge ship. All of this in the belly of a whale, cavernous belly of a whale. That picture, throw it out. It has nothing to do with this story, okay? The Bible does tell us he was swallowed by a big fish, but it's not like he spent uh, a week in Hawaii while he was beached in the, the belly of the whale, okay? Not like that whatsoever. As a matter of fact, the scriptures are fairly silent, and I can only imagine that it would be the most horrendous. How many of you have ever seen Men in Black where the roach swallows him? Yeah. And not an experience you ever wanted to remember. It was worse than that. So as we go through this story of the prophet Jonah, I want us to see that Jonah is so much like you and I, but even then, God had a redemptive plan for this prophet. So turn with me, if you would, to Jonah chapter 1. We're not going to read all four chapters by any means. Actually, we're not even going to look into chapter 4. But we are going to be looking at bits and pieces, all of three, but bits and pieces of chapters 1 and 2. Jonah, as you're turning to Jonah chapter 1, his ministry was around somewhere around 775 B.C. To throw out some other dates, he obviously goes to the city of, help me out, Nineveh. 
Nineveh around 700 BC, so 75 years, give or take. We don't know exactly when Jonah's ministry was, but around then, we have a pretty good idea though. Around 700 BC, Nineveh becomes the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. So at the time of Jonah, it's not the capital. It is a burgeoning city. Jonah prophesies during the reign of Jeroboam II, a king of Israel. You may remember that it's been many, many years by that time. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam II, obviously because there was a Jeroboam I. You probably figured that one out, though. And Jeroboam II brings Israel into what is commonly called their golden age. Jonah ministers during his reign, and he actually prophesies that the extent of Israel's northern and eastern borders will reach their heights that they did under King Solomon. And it had shrunk considerably. So that would mean it would encompass the city of Damascus and much of Syria, or then known Syria, and it would be a golden age for them. He was told to go to Nineveh and preach repentance. The word of the Lord, verse 1 came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up to me. But Jonah ran away. Now, I can only imagine that there were two basic reasons why Jonah would run away. God is a, it speaks to him prophetically, and it's not the first time. The other times in which he has prophesied awesome prophecies, spot on. He was a prophet of God. He, he hears the true word of God. Go to Nineveh, and what does he say? Oh, absolutely, Lord. Your wish is my command. No, it says, but Jonah ran away. Actually, he ran away to Tarshish, which the Phoenicians had kind of ruled the Mediterranean, and Tarshish was probably on the other end of the Mediterranean. He headed in the opposite direction. He absolutely refused to obey the word of God. That was so clear to him. It's not like, I think the Lord is saying to me, no, it was so clear to him. And he disobeyed God. And he knew that he disobeyed God. And I, I, and here are two reasons. Number one, I want you to imagine with me, Jonah going to the city of Nineveh. It says that it was a three days journey or three days visit. Some would say that it's because it would take three days to walk around it, which it wouldn't take three days to walk around the city of Nineveh proper, but it would because there are the, the uh, adjoining towns around Nineveh, it would be 60 miles, 20 miles a day, which is the general journey in one day for most in that day. So it would take three days. But I can only imagine that it probably had more to do with how long it would take to walk throughout the entire city of Nineveh, which was eight miles in circumference. Can you imagine all the roads and houses? He had to preach throughout Nineveh. It's not like he stood in city hall, gave a sermon, and left. Throughout the city, he was preaching. Can you imagine a prophet of Yahweh, that is God's covenantal name that we find in the Old Testament, preaching 
to a people who believed in the fish god Dagon and their statues that we have discovered from Nineveh that would support this. And they worshiped a completely different god. If he did this, they would kill him. So he thought, great, God, if I go there and they don't repent, they're going to kill me. Or if they do repent, it's going to prove me to be a liar. I really don't like the odds in this. So let's just do it my way. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm going to kick back, have a vacation, enjoy myself, and absolutely not do what you tell me to. Now, have you ever, dads, moms, have you ever had a child? When you are telling them, I need you to do this and you need to do it now, and they look up at you and they say, no, and they walk in the opposite direction, okay? Yeah, let's have a discussion in the bathroom, shall we? Okay, and I've got a little uh, motivation stick that we're going to be, anyway, I, yeah, I don't think so here. And, and God does bring discipline to him. You would imagine, wow, Jonah, oh, buddy, you really tested God's limits here. He is now going to say, you know what? You didn't obey me. I will never use you again. And you would imagine God taking Jonah and putting him on the shelf. But that is not what God does. Now, I'm going to fast forward just for right now to chapter 3. And I'm going to read chapter 3. And I want us to look at God's redemptive plan. And it did not change. He still had extended this plan and this purpose, this destiny, if you will, for Jonah. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days. Now, I imagine the Lord had made this clear to him. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes. This is serious, people. Took off his royal robes. A king just never does that before his, his subjects. Covered himself with sackcloth. A king never does this. And sat down in the dust. A king never does this. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone, listen to this, call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did, when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. King James says that he repented. That means he changed his mind and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. 
Nineveh was a very important city. But what amazes me above all of this was how do you get a reluctant prophet not only to obey the Lord again, but when he preaches, what happens is the great, listen to this, the greatest revival this world has ever seen in a city. I know of no record, even in the New Testament, when a man went and preached for three days that the entire city changed. Now, I, well, I am aware of entire cities eventually changing over time, transformed, amazing, amazing move of God. Evil businesses thrown out and godly businesses in their places. And we've seen this in spots throughout the world, in our day, in our day, church. But we have never seen a revival like this. Now, this causes skeptics, especially, to look at the book of Jonah and say, it is entirely fable. How on earth could a great fish swallow him? Why on earth would Nineveh ever repent? Because some distant, from some guy, some prophet, some preacher from a distant nation comes and preaches in your land and you forsake your Dagon God and you worship a different God? How is this ever possible? And my question is this, you know, first of all, why in God's heart would he still give Jonah a second chance? But why do we see such a pervasive revival in Nineveh? Now, all of these questions that I have, and, and there's more, and I'm sure that you have some of these questions too, is perhaps you've read through the entire book of Jonah. I think that they all hinge on this one question, why or how did God, through Jonah, bring about such a revival? That is the focal point. And all of these questions about the fish and about, you know, why did he even be thrown overboard? Jonah's disobedience and everything comes down to this one question. How or why would such a large city actually in this day, at this time, it would be considered the largest city in the world? 120,000 in the city at this time. And the city repented. As I mentioned, they worshipped the god Dagon. Now, the Philistines worshipped Dagon. You may remember they captured the Ark of the Covenant in a battle. They brought it to Ashdod. They set it in the temple of their god Dagon, which is a half-fish half-man God, and the next morning when the priests go into Dagon's temple, we see that the, temp that the God, the, the statue of Dagon had fallen down and its head and hands have broken off, which by the way, generally are those parts of the God that would be human. They broke off and there the idol is fallen on the threshold of the temple in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They realize 
this is not the usual type of God that we're dealing with. And fear struck up. You may remember the story boils. There were plagues that were beginning to spread. They, they said, you know what? We don't want to have anything to do with this Ark of the Covenant. They sent it back to Israel. This is the same God, Dagon. It actually had its center right here in Nineveh. They believed in this God, that this half man, half God that came out of the sea, presented himself, taught the people how to, um, how to farm, how to, um, how to be moral, and how to live life, even apparently taught them geometry. These are the aspects of the legend. And they firmly were rooted in this cult belief. And our question is, how do you get a city so entrenched in this to repent and follow the Lord? Why would they repent? Look at, keep, keep your, because we're coming back to Jonah. Keep your finger here in Jonah. Let's look at Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, it says this, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of, help me, Jonah. Except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah, the sign of Jonah was that he was going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, great fish. doesn't say whale, by the way, anywhere in the Bible. But there was a whale that size that even Aristotle wrote about, what, 4th century B.C. or so. Um, there was a whale and a, a great white shark, both of which were capable of swallowing a man alive. Regardless, there's, there's no mention of the whale. And Jesus says that even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. But this text says a little bit more than that, doesn't it? Okay? Matthew 12 is where it spe specifically says three days and three nights. But this says that Jonah will be a sign to the Ninevites. I want you to consider that. What would that mean? Jesus apparently has an insight that we need to look into here. Jonah, when he came to Nineveh, he was a sign to the people. How could he be a sign? If I, I'm sorry, but if I walked the streets of Sanford and Lake Mary and preached, unless you repent, you will all perish, how would I in any way be assigned to them? We might be able to say, well, your words could be assigned, but words are never signs. Things, objects are signs, because signs are what? Visible, right? You see a sign, and that sign says something to you, Right? Like, stop or you're going to die, all right? You see those stop signs. You see the red light. If you proceed right now, you will have a terrible accident. You won't make it, okay? Those signs, we should do well to heed. So a sign is something that you see. What did they see in Jonah that would be a sign to them specifically that would confirm his message, repent? Actually, he's, he didn't even say repent that we're aware of. Actually, what he says is, 
you know what, you're done. God's going to judge you. You have 40 more days and that's it. You're gone. You're going to be totally destroyed. Not a lot of hope in that message, Jonah. But that is what we read here in the book of Jonah. And so we need to then ask this question, how is Jonah a sign? And here's what we discover. Dagon had his cult worship center there in Nineveh. And no doubt, when Jonah, in his disobedience, was thrown overboard, God had this all awesomely planned out in which he was swallowed by a great fish. And confession here, I've never been in the belly of a a great fish for three days and three nights. I don't know what it was like, okay? Um, Some of you got the stomach virus a few weeks ago. The first time you vomited, you knew what it it was horrible. Okay, you never want to do that one again. But how can I say this graciously? Um, To what degree was your food digested just in those six to maybe 12 hours before that event took place? It digested pretty well. And Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, and he survived. Now, I can only imagine, as he is walking the streets of Nineveh, what he looked like. His skin, his, if he, (laughs) now, I would have gotten rid of the clothes. But remember, it was just him. They didn't throw his luggage overboard. He didn't grab that with him. He didn't have a boat like in Pinocchio, okay? It was just him, just these clothes, no money. How on earth is he going to get a fresh pair of clothes? Maybe he had to walk to Nineveh in those clothes, half digested by this great fish. His hair, half digested by this great fish. But God preserved his life. Now, if you were to look at Jonah chapter 2, it says things like this in verse 1. In my distress, verse Chapter 2, verse 2, in my distress, it's a prayer, by the way, I called to the Lord and he answered me from the depths of the grave or Sheol, called for help and you listened to my cry. Some believe that Jonah actually died in the belly of this great fish and that he was resurrected and thereby being an even greater parallel with Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, I'm not sure that that's what he's trying to say here. It may very well be that Jonah recalls being swallowed, crying out for help as this chapter unveils for us in his prayer. Maybe he died, if so, God resurrected him, or maybe God just preserved him. It would probably be such a traumatic event. Now, if you're swallowed, my understanding, by a sperm whale, which would be the type of whale that could do this, Uh, They're not plankton eaters. They eat octopus, and they can swallow humans alive. But my understanding is they have four stomachs. And those stomachs are not, like, huge. They have actually found in the second stomachs, some third, but second stomachs, 18,000 octopus or squid beaks. 
um, because that, that type of stuff just doesn't get digested. 18,000. Yeah, let's clean up around here. <laughs> You're getting a little cluttered, all right? But I can only imagine the, the stomach muscles press in because they don't chew their food. It presses in and crushes the victim. Somehow through all of this, God preserved him. But I, I, I can tell you right now, it was not a vacation. It was not a pleasant experience. It was probably the most horrendous, horrifying, fear-filling experience Jonah ever had in his entire life and that most humans will ever have. But in those three days, should he have died? Oh, absolutely. Did he die and was resurrected? Did God just preserve him? We don't know. And, and it's very possible Jonah may not have even known. He just knows. He got swallowed. He should have died, cried out to God, and next thing you know, he is vomited on the land. Now note this. It says, God commanded the great fish, and guess what the great fish did? He obeyed God. Do you see the contrast with Jonah, the, with Jonah, the stupid prophet, and the great big stupid fish? At least the fish obeyed him the first time. You kind of get the little bit of humor thrown in there in that last verse of chapter 2. Yeah, at least the great fish obeyed. But he is, he is vomited up, probably the most horrendous experience. And as he's preaching in Nineveh, he himself is a sign to the people. But in what way? I did mention that they worshipped Dagon, the fish god. There is a Greek priest slash historian that lived in the 300s BC. We have discovered his writings. And he talks about the, the god of, the, uh, of the, this uh, Dagon. And Dagon, apparently, as legend unfolds, would have several, he had several avatars. Avatars are reincarnations. So apparently, Dagon had originally done his thing and over every several hundred years would send an avatar or a reincarnation of himself who would come up out of the sea and he would help the people, help the people, and eventually go back into the sea. Now, I don't know, and I've thought about this, where would a legendary fish god ever come from? And I, I'm not going to go here, but I'm going to suggest, you know, maybe in the very beginning, Noah, having survived the flood, being a creature of righteousness, by the way, Dagon is a the grain god, and Noah was a farmer, and he taught people how to farm. He taught righteousness. He was called a preacher of righteousness. So, you know, is, is that where it was based on over hundreds and hundreds of years? It got to, I, I don't know. But, but follow me here. Barosus, this Greek priest historian, writes, and he uses the name Oannes. He doesn't use the name Dagon. As a matter of fact, it's... Oannes is never mentioned in all of Assyrian literature. We're wondering, where does this guy get this name? And well-known theologians from hundreds of years ago have supposed this is probably one of the avatars. Now, why am I even mentioning this? Because what better way would God use to get people's attention than someone who would come and maybe at least initially be viewed as an avatar of Dagon, 
but preaching repentance. Now I'm going to come back to that because I don't believe that. But maybe initially this got their attention, but something more happened here that we need to unfold. Now I'm going to go through this quickly because this is just an, an, an aspect of what I'm preaching on this morning. But as Barosis writes, he talks about how well-known Oannes was, and as people have tried to, you know, where does he get this name, Oannes? Now, here's what we find out. He was a Greek historian, Barosis. He is taking Assyrian literature, and he is translating it, or with names, you transliterate names, okay? You take that letter and translate it into, for him, a Greek letter. When you do that and translate from Assyrian to Greek and you take a J, what do you do with a J? You do one of two things. You either change it into an I, like the, the name Jesus. We might be inclined to put a, a, a J there as in English, but when you transliterate it into Greek, you use a Greek letter I, Iesus. You, so you either change the J to an I, now follow me here, or you get rid of the J altogether. Now, do you happen to know what Jonah's name is in the Greek New Testament? It's gone by two names, Ionas or Ioannis. Drop the I, Oannes, the exact name that Barosis used. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily it was Jonah, because it... He, and, and certainly, and here's my contention, God would never, ever cater to a pagan belief in a fish god and use that to call the people to righteousness. But he would certainly be inclined to use it as a sign. But it would speak more than this. Be, here's my point. When God says, repent, he is not just concerned about our actions. He is concerned about our attitude and our beliefs. He would not say, just repent, and when they repent, doesn't bring judgment, and thereby cause them to worship Dagon, the fish god, even more. Now, we know this. If you were to look at chapter 2, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? So follow me. In chapter 1, when he is about to be thrown overboard, in verse 12, it says, instead, the, main, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to Yahweh. Now, your version says L-O-R-D in all caps, and that is the translation of this name, Yahweh. And so they're actually, they're pagan sailors, but they recognize there must be, Jonah's God must be real, and they cry out to his God, Yahweh, and they say to Yahweh, oh Yahweh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, oh Yahweh, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared, who, Dagon? No, Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows to him. When Jonah's in the belly of fish, in the belly of the great fish, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is where I'm going with this. God would not have an avatar of Dagon 
preaching repentance, the people repent and God spares them. He would want to change their worship that they are no longer to follow after the God Dagon, but follow after Yahweh. That is, that is true repentance. Now, we must realize that this, what's happening here, is true repentance. Go back to Luke 11. Go back to Luke 11, verse 32. We're going to see something here. This is significant. Because if we miss this, we're going to miss the impact of this entire book. In verse 32, it says, he, he, he tells the people of his generation, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. That is, at the end of the age, at the great white throne judgment, the men of Nineveh, they're going to stand up with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. This is true repentance. If they had not truly repented, if they just cleaned up on the outside, but they were remained stubborn and continuing to believe in a, a Dagon fish god and following those writings, you know, we have the revealed writings of Yahweh, and it's right here, Old Testament and New. And Jesus is the full revelation of God himself. He is God come in the flesh. He is not an avatar of Dagon. He truly is not. He is God himself come in the flesh, and he has spoken to us the way to be saved. Now, these people obviously abandoned their belief in Dagon. They believed in Yahweh, and they repented of their evil deeds. We see here in chapter 3, the king himself hears about this. A man vomited. He was in the belly of a great fish for three days. You can tell his flesh eaten away, and yet his life preserved, his clothes, his hair. Complete evidence that this man had survived the sea. He is now on a mission to tell us something. I want to hear him. And whatever happens there in the king's heart and in the hearts of the people in Nineveh forever changes them. The people, of, the men of Nineveh will be able to stand up and without hypocrisy condemn Jesus' generation for not believing in the one true God. You see, this is a revival. God did something awesome. But here's what I believe he did. Can I ask you, when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and God sent a deliverer, God used ten plagues. Do you understand the significance of those ten plagues and what they said about the gods of Egypt? Those ten plagues were actually a rather sarcastic confrontation with various gods in Egypt. That Yahweh was showing himself to be greater than them. And so with each plague, God demonstrated, your gods are powerless in my hand. I will perform my awesome works and I will deliver my people Israel. And we know that God did this. Fast forward now to, now they're in, Philist, they're in Philistia. The ark has been captured. And 
the Ark of the Covenant is before this Dagon God, and what happens there? The statue falls on its face. The parts that are human break off, and the people are taken aback, and their conclusion is not, well, we should worship Dagon more. It's rather... This God of the Israelites is more powerful. He is scary. Plagues are breaking out. Let's get rid of him. We don't want him here. God demonstrated he is far greater than these these other cultic gods, which truly are not gods, and you know this. Now we fast forward to Elijah, and Elijah has a duel. Actually, three and a half years before his duel on Mount Carmel, He says it will not rain for three and a half years. Now, you may be well aware of this. Baal, the main worship, main God worshiped in Israel, Sidon and such, Baal was the fertility God. He's the one who said whether it rained or not. And yet Yahweh said it's not going to rain and it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And this ticked King Ahab, who worshiped Baal, by the way, ticked him off. And finally, God said after three and a half years, okay, Jonah, uh, excuse me, Elijah, time to go and visit King Ahab. And he did, and you know about the duel between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. And the God that would answer by fire, that is the true God. And when God answered Elijah, not the prophets of Baal, with fire, the people in unison shout, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And, and I'm saying this because here we, we cannot just simply say, yeah, this wasn't true revival, and yeah, God really, God just had the Ninevites stop doing bad things, but they eventually were condemned in their lives. They were not. I want us to see there is true repentance here, such that this is the biggest revival ever, and it is at the hands a disobedient prophet. Amazing. God's grace is truly amazing. I would have to say, though, that even though God extends his mercy about 100 to 150 years later, the city of Nineveh abandons goes back to its old practices of wickedness and violence. And the prophet Nahum comes and says, this time it's over. And in 612 BC, the city of Nineveh is completely destroyed. And there is no repentance and there is no deliverance. The city of Nineveh was not only destroyed, but for about 2,500 years or so, give or take, they lost where that city was. And about the mid-1800s, they came to a place and they dug an underneath two tells, which are two mounds where cities would have been. Under two tells, they discovered the old city of Nineveh, lost for around 2,500 years. The name of one of these tells, I want to be able to pronounce it right, is Nebi Yunus. When, that's Arabic. When translated, it means the prophet Jonah. Nahum says this. 
and, and you don't need to turn there. I'm, I'm just going to read it. But Nahum says this. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the darkness. Just 110 years before Nineveh fell, in 722 B.C., after Jonah, but before Nineveh's demise, they came to Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam II's golden age came crashing to an end. And the Assyrians ransacked all of the nation, all of the kingdom of Israel, and destroyed them, and scattered those ten tribes, never to be found again. God brought his judgment. And so where would we be going with all of this? I want us to see that even though Jonah had been so disobedient, so obstinate, so willfully disobedient to God, God brought him to this place of repentance in the belly of a fish. And this is what my Bible teaches me. That whenever we repent, whenever we cry out to God for forgiveness, he always answers and he always pours out his grace. And there is never, church, there is never, ever an end to his forgiveness. You will never need to come to that point in your life and say, oh man, I blew it this time. In the early days of my marriage with my wife, I can't tell you how many times I thought that I'd blown it. I thought, this marriage is going to fall apart now. Seriously, I, I, I thought I had blown it for the last time. And God, even though I asked, forgive me. And man, I was just, that was so wrong. I, I hurt my wife so deeply. Ah, God, forgive me. Yeah, th this marriage is done. God always rescued our marriage. And I'm so grateful for both the patience of God and my wife, and that God forgave me, and yes, my wife forgave me too. We have honestly both been boneheaded at times. Married couples, you understand what I'm saying here, right? But the truth is that we can never run beyond God's bounds of grace. His grace is always enough. We sang it's always sufficient. He will always forgive. He will never abandon those who have chosen to follow him. He will never say, you know what? Sorry, coach for you now. Second class citizens. The, 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 the purposes I had for you, totally changing, never going to happen. We have an example of it, many examples, honestly. But when Israel had, dis, had, had so rebelled against God, he brought Nebuchadnezzar and he had the, the city of Jerusalem destroyed and the temple completely destroyed. Solomon's temple, it was awesome. It was glorious. Seventy years later, out of the city of Babylon, he calls his people and he says, rebuild my temple. Wow, God, a second chance? A second chance because they believed that God would use the Jewish people 
to reach and rescue all the nations. And you're going to have us rebuild this. You're going to give us a second chance? Even though we engaged in the occult practices, even though we killed your prophets, you're going to give us a second chance? And in Haggai chapter 2, as they build the temple, it may not have been as big as Solomon's temple, but God says this, it will be more glorious. Do you see the hope that's extended there? And Herod, during the, when Jesus was born, that Herod, Herod the Great, he had it remodeled, expanded, rebuilt. And it was that temple that Jesus, the Son of God, came to, did miracles, proclaimed the gospel. God himself came to that temple. The Messiah that was been prophesied for hundreds of years did not come to Solomon's, but to that temple. The temple that God said, you know what, I'm going to give you another chance. This is the God we serve. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we, were, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. He has good works for you to do. And just because I sin and stumble, he doesn't say, sorry, plan B. He doesn't say after we stumble again, sorry, plan C, plan D. And eventually we think, well, God, there's going to be no plan left that you're going to revert to. That is not the heart of God. In Acts 13, 36, it says that when... David died, he had served God's purpose in his generation. There was no plan B or C or D or E. David, and you remember David, his sin with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. God said to David, I've not abandoned you. David repented, truly repented. Turned to God. God not only forgave him, but he secured his promises and made them sure and brought to pass everything that God promised after David had sinned and repented. And in Psalm 138.8, it says this. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Someone like Peter, denying the Lord three times, and yet God said, you know what? I'm not done with you, Peter. Peter was so ashamed. He had, in the face of opportunity to stand up for Jesus, yes, I am with him. I'm one of his disciples. I'm one of his followers. You're going to take him. You got to go through me. Totally denied knowing Jesus. Went outside after three denials and wept. Scripture says he wept bitterly. He was hysterical. He had repented. And there was this foreboding shadow over him. How could God ever use me again? And in the last chapter of John, the significance is so awesome when Jesus says three times to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. 
three times, affirming him, my call on your life has not changed even a little bit. That is my gift. That is my forgiveness. Church, can you stand with me? You know, uh, for me, I, I still have allergies and aversions to various things. And many of us, we, we can still wrestle with this aversion to complete obedience to God. No. And yet God says, if you would but repent, I want to pour out my grace upon you, forgive you. And I have this awesome plan for your life. I have not given up on you. And some of you need to hear that. The Lord says to you, I have not given up on you. I have purposes, divine, powerful purposes for you. And I have not given up on you. And if you're at that place right now and you're just wondering, wow, God, how could you ever use me again? Know this for sure. He will. Because his promises are sure. Father, I, I just ask you right now that you would encourage us with your word. Father, your grace is so amazing. Your love pursues us. Father, I would ask that we would not lose hope in this, that we would not run from you, but that, Father, we would eventually stop and we would say, God, would you forgive me? Would you wash my heart clean here? Don't abandon me. Renew this hope, oh God, in me. Renew my courage. God, some of us, we are just so discouraged. We are holding on by a thread. But your word has never changed. Would you speak this truth to our hearts this afternoon, God? And would you impress this truth upon us that God you are good your mercy endures forever and you are more than willing to forgive and use us again and Father if there's anyone here who has never experienced this grace of God and forgiveness today I am asking you God would you open each of our hearts and that we would embrace the revelation of who Jesus is as the one who came and died in my place on Calvary's cross. That he was punished for my sins. And you merely ask me to believe in you, to repent, to turn to you, to submit to you. Be my Lord and my God. Rescue me, God. Rescue me from this aversion to obedience. Rescue me from this addiction to sin. Rescue me, God, and forgive me. And I just ask you, Father, that each of us this morning would find that grace that's revealed in Jesus Christ.